0: And this is true across my entire career, I think, where reps really start to learn and where the first reps in the door at like startup companies, the reason they become so good is because oftentimes they're actually co-working the deal with like the CEO and nobody knows that pitch better than the CEO. And maybe there's one other person at the company. It could be a CTO. It could be a co-founder or whatever it is, or a president or something like that. There's somebody at that company that has that go-to-market vision more often than not it's the CEO. I remember even in my selling days, I would definitely partner and bring the CEO in on that, for lack of a better word, stage two Salesforce opportunity, where it's like, you've already done the discovery.
1: Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they've learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello, and welcome to Revenue Insights. Today, I'm joined by Michael Hellman, I hope I've pronounced that correctly, who is the VP of Worldwide Sales Operations at Demandbase. He's got an incredibly, I'd say, glittered career of over 15 years worth of experience from managing sales teams in field sales, sales management, business development, all the way through to his role in sales operations now. So Michael, great to have you on. Thank you for joining us.
0: Yeah, thank you, Lee. Thanks for inviting me on today.
1: So the normal starting point that I kind of start the episodes with is kind of ask you a nice vague question of what has been your journey over the past, I think you're coming up to like 20 years in your career now. What's been the journey that you've been on to get to get you to where you are today?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's a little bit different than most people. But actually, technically, I started like I was an intern. I was in college and I became an intern. And this is back during the original dot-com boom. And I started off actually more on the engineering side of the house. And I was actually doing QA engineering. And that turned into release engineering. So I was kind of more on the technical, geeky side of things. Mm -hmm. And I quickly realized, oh man, this is probably not suiting some of my core skill sets here. And then I'm probably a better speaker, a better writer and communicator versus coder. So long story short, I used that to springboard into kind of the next step getting towards sales, which was to become an SE. And I was an SE for several years, did that. And in the course of being an SE, I realized, man, these sales guys are like making a ton of money. and Geez, I'm kind of like carrying the deals in some cases, and I feel like I could be doing this. And, And so that kind of sprung me into sales. I did that for several years and had some success in the territories that I was covering. And I kind of got promoted. I would say at the time I wasn't necessarily looking for it, but just by virtue of kind of where the company was at and what we were doing, I got put into a management role. And long story short, I kind of went through the whole sales management chain from first line sales manager to second line sales manager. And then ultimately to VP of sales, kind of overseeing SDR function, field sales function, and kind of go to market for a company. And I had done that for consistently for a while. And to be honest, it just got to the point where I was either going to join a new company or this other door opened up where they said, hey, there's this ops thing that's kind of come up. And would you be interested in taking a look at it? And I could have gone and joined a new company, but that would have meant I would have had it has been in sales. And to be honest, I was a little bit getting a little bit tired of the whole hamster wheel of quarter, 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 you know, rinse, repeat. And I wasn't learning much is probably the best way to put it. Mm. It was the same routine over and over again. And I had a thirst and a desire to actually like learn something new. And ops has really served as that. So I jumped both feet in and transitioned into ops And I think, to be honest, what probably made it a little bit easier to do is I've always kept that technical background of mine more on the engineering side, a thirst, a love for data, tinkering with tools and playing with applications. And that really helped me kind of springboard into ops where I'm just, I wasn't afraid to dive very deeply into things.
1: feels like you've really come full circle on starting out as a sales engineer to kind of getting you to where you are now. So... Something that I noted when um, kind of having a little look through your LinkedIn earlier today was you mentioned about like being passionate about the build, launch and growth stages of maturity. If you were to pick one, though, which would it be and why?
0: That's a good question.
1: I mean, they're all fun. They kind of represent different sizes of companies.
0: Each one, like you'd be like, oh, small companies are easier. or whatever, But like each one is incredibly challenging. When you're at the build stage, you're counting the deals on your right hand. You're like, man, if we could just win that one deal, that would make such a difference to this company. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It kind of validates our go-to-market and how do we reproduce that one deal again versus the other extreme, which is you're a much larger company. And it's like deals at this point, we're signing like dozens of deals a day, right? And it's just like, we can't even close them fast enough. And it's like, you've kind of cracked the code on things and it presents a whole separate set of challenges, right? Which is how do we scale this thing? How do we get more mature? How do we create more processes? So I don't know. I personally I don't discriminate. I've enjoyed every aspect of it in between, and it's been fun to be part of that ride. It's certainly a demand base too, right? Where there was kind of that build, launch, and and kind of scale of things. I don't know. In many, I think if I probably were to restart today, it is fun to be part of the build process because you become a part of the fabric of the organization.
1: And this is obviously so. This is the second time that you've done it because so you were at StrongView before, went through to exit, I believe, yep. and then moved over to demand Base. So when you moved to demand Base, so was it around the build stage then? I would say so. I mean, that was like
0: our now our CEO, who at the time was a VP of sales. Like part of the initial mission was, let's crack the code on this and let's build a machine. Mm-hmm. And deals would come in one, two here. We kind of knew we were getting into something. I mean, demand-based in our particular space, it's known as account-based marketing or what's now known as ABM. Which I think has become a bit more of a household kind of understood category. Certainly, back when we started, you'd call somebody and say, you know, we're doing ABM and they have no clue what that meant, right? And and that goes to show, right? (laughs) And the maturity of things. But yeah, I mean, we were literally, the goal was to build a machine and it was deals were coming in. We really didn't have much competition. And it was how do we figure out a way to kind of templatize this so that as we hire two five, 10 more reps, we can conduct that same experience over and over again and start to build this, you know, the scale of the company.
1: Yeah, the dream of like predictable revenue growth, right? Yeah. So you touched on like the machine. Could you kind of give a bit more context on, I guess, what that machine looked like when you first joined? And then also what you looked to then build, and I would imagine by now have been able to build right
0: yeah I mean this is I don't know it would be pretty simplistic there really just wasn't much of a machine at all yeah and I think that's just a lack of like process and people and mm-hmm. what we had was a ton of energy, a ton of excitement, a lot of funding, really good marketing but like in terms of like building an engine that actually like helped us look at a mathematical right. equation and say aha like we can get from A to Z because we put these processes or this amount of funding or this type of plan in place that didn't exist and it was relying on a lot of salesmanship like hey let's like these your accounts let's go call these accounts and let's get in there and figure out what's going on right there wasn't necessarily the kind of an elegant plan of like rep productivity models there was not like hey let's have an elegant marketing waterfall to understand like how many leads a given rep is going to need to be successful and so forth and so Again, for lack of a better word, it's hand to hand combat. It's you come in every day, you have a set of accounts, and yeah, you have inside sales and SDR representation, but like some people were whiffing, right? And some people were really going big. And the question becomes is like, well, for the people that are going big and doing it well, you know, they've what they've done is they've kind of cracked the code on like how to do the pitch, right? And they know how to like size up a deal, qualify a deal, which, which are these key ingredients to actually like winning, right? But then the question becomes is how do you take a winning recipe? push that across the rest of the sales org, and then build a pipeline infrastructure that supports the ability to do all that. And in today's modern world, it's like, you see a lot of companies investing in enablement, right? So like, they're almost kind of like the recipe makers, right? Or they, they're there to basically interview the sales team, understanding like, hey, what are you doing? How are you doing it? What are your discovery questions? How are you qualifying? How, like, what are the use cases that you're dialing in on? And then the rest of it is just sales process, right? So how do you develop a repeatable sales model that the sales team can more or less follow? And then the other aspect of it is in terms of building a machine is kind of how do you set realistic goals for the sales team in terms of bookings goals and quotas, but then back into that with how much marketing is going to need to support them, right? And every company is different. Right? MQLs, SQLs, and that's going to translate into stages in Salesforce and But at the end of the day, there's pre pipeline and there's pipeline. And at the end of the day, every sales rep is going to need to have X amount of at bats or pipeline in a given quarter. And if you have certain win rates, you can kind of start to mathematically predict, like, hey, if we give this person X amount of at bats, in theory, if enablement has trained them and they've kind of got them up to speed, they should be able to get to where we want them to get to. Right. And that creates systems of measurements and assessment of strength and understanding of have we done our job to get these people up to speed if we have then maybe it's not a good fit right that's how you start to assess talent and understand
1: how is the field performing nice and if uh knowing what you know now and obviously learned over the last seven seven years that you've been at demand base is there particularly at that that you kind of mentioned earlier when you're at that build stage you're looking for that like one deal that could make all of the difference and the amount of pipeline that you've got often is a lot, more, a lot smaller and you're obviously cherishing that like a lot more. Is there like one thing that you've kind of learned from your experience that was just incredibly valuable for a rep perspective to actually help them to close more deals?
0: Yeah, like early stage
1: companies, and this is true across my entire career, I
0: think, where reps really start to learn and where the first reps in the door at like startup companies, the reason they become so good is because oftentimes they're actually co-working the deal with like the CEO. And nobody knows that pitch better than the CEO. And maybe there's one other person at the company. It could be a CTO. It could be a co-founder or whatever it is, or a president or something like that. There's somebody at that company that has that go-to-market vision. More often than not, it's the CEO. I remember even in my selling days, I would definitely partner and bring the CEO in on that, for lack of a better word, stage two Salesforce opportunity, where it's like, you've already done the discovery. Now's the big pitch. And no different than like, and by virtue of doing that, there's a lot of osmosis that happens where the, you see that CEO give that pitch to a customer, not an investor, and a lot of that rub off happens. And then that's where like those early salespeople oftentimes become like sales leads on teams too, because they then carry that kind of vision and kind of a talk track into accounts. The other piece too, I'll say is really small startups. Literally, it's one week. It's like, oh, we're going to talk about our products this way. The next week, it's, okay, now we're going to talk about a product, right? Things change very quickly because you're constantly adjusting and adapting to like, Mm -hmm. crap, that didn't work. We got to pivot. Let's try something new. Oh, our competitors, this other market, which seems hotter, is now saying this. Let's try that. And so I think the reps at these early stage companies that really partner with like the visionaries of the company, they can quickly adapt. They learn that talk track. There's A lot of sales learned by osmosis, by listening in, by watching. And uh, that's where I've seen a lot of success for super early stage companies for reps.
1: Nice. That's really cool. And if we were talking a little about this before hitting the record button, but if knowing what you know now, say you were like, okay, I'm ready for something new. Perhaps you wanted to kind of move on from your role at this stage. If you were going into like launching a sales org again, I guess a lot has changed in that time since you kind of last were part of launching one. How would you approach it? Yeah,
0: that's a good
1: question. So if I had
0: to contrast myself before, where I really was this coming from like a sales point of view, like the big net difference, like today, like let's put myself five years ago versus myself today, it'd be a very big difference, right? Or even say, put myself, let's just say, for example, I'd never joined ops and I'd continue down the sales path versus myself where I kind of left sales and went into ops and we were competing for the same job, right? Like- I, or we we were doing the same job. Like I would fundamentally be approaching it very different now that I've had the ops experience, right? I think it's just because I've had that experience of now really digging into the hardcore mm. spreadsheet details of understanding what are the mechanics of how do you make a hundred plus salesperson organization like tick, and then how do you reliably and predictably hit goals? And I think unless I mean, I guess this is my personal opinion, unless you're kind of stewing in those details and understand how that engine runs, it becomes very hard to like challenge it, right? Because at the end of the day, like a CRO, a head of sales, a VP of sales, they're going to be a customer to those plans. And those plans are going to get presented by a CFO, FPNA, maybe a CEO or whatever. And it's like either you're just going to take it or you're going to be like a semi-active participant or you're going to challenge it. And I think at least today with the experience that I've had, it puts me much in a better position, not just to be a customer, but to be like, send me the spreadsheets. I want to dig into it. I want to understand the model. I want to understand the drivers and what I'm kind of signing up for. And is it reasonable? So I think if I were to restart today and do and kind of take on that sales leadership role, I would definitely be integrating a lot of the tool set that I've learned over the past four years or so.
1: Really cool. Uh, I wonder if we can reverse engineer that in a way. So if you were... Uh... Knowing what you know now, and you touched on it a bit there from like an operations perspective, what would be, to, and we have like quite a few sales leaders listening to the podcast, what would be the advice that you'd kind of give to them in terms of that understanding of what ops can do to help them do their day-to-day jobs, essentially helping them to hit their goals, particularly like their revenue targets?
0: Yeah, I guess my feedback would be like, I think the really good sales leaders that I have seen, they tend to be very, very operational nature. And it just, it requires kind of a, a brutal discipline right around goals and metrics. Yeah. And I guess the feedback would be like, cause there's some sales leaders, right? Where like they're kind of, I hate to say this, but died in the wool salespeople, right? The raw, let's go, let's go fight, let's go win. Let's get on a sales pitch together, let's, let's go fight. Mm-hmm. But then there are these people that kind of abstract themselves from that. And they do become much more kind of numbers driven. And Which is critically important. And I think there's a happy medium between the two, right? But I think, like, let's just say, for example, if you wanted to be a good partner with like your sales ops or fp a team or whoever delivers that information to you at the company, you don't necessarily need to understand the mechanics for how the equation works, but you do need to understand those numbers and you need to understand the drivers behind those numbers. And so, for example, again, you don't need to understand the formulas of the spreadsheet and how all that stuff works. But you, do, you should have an understanding of like the assumptions that are driving the formula. And I'll give you some examples. Like a sales leader should be understanding, okay, how many ramp reps do I have? And how does that cadence go through the course of the year? What is my quota capacity over the course of this year? What is company plan? And how does that cadence go over the course of the year? How much float do I have between company plan and my quota capacity plan for the rest of the year? Across all the segments of people I have. Do I have fair coverage of quota capacity relative to, to company plan? And again, this is not a sales leader going into a spreadsheet and it's asking these simple questions. And saying, okay, do I have enough coverage? Do I have enough protection in the plan? And then underneath that too, it's like, for example, you start a year, CFO goes, hey guys, like I think we should do 50% growth year over year. And it's like, okay, where'd that number come from? Why do we believe we can grow this much? Am I signing up for something that's impossible? And then at the end of the day, it's like, okay, let's start digging into this. What are our assumptions? How many reps are we hiring? What? How many deals per rep do we think we need to get done per quarter? What are the implications from a marketing perspective? Do we have enough pipeline to feed that? Do we know our win rates? Like, what are the implied win rates in this? What are the ASPs we're dealing with here, right? If we win, are these aspirational goals that you have? Are we looking backwards for data? Because I'll tell you, that's another thing where sales leaders can get a bit tripped up too, is you start the year, a number gets handed to you, and it's based on all these assumptions. This is our win rate. This is our ASP. We think you're going to grow this much. This is the productivity per rep we think we're going to yield. And you start to dig into it and you go, where'd you get that ASP? Or where'd you get that productivity? Or where did you get our win rate from? And you go, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like we're launching new products, or we've just done XYZ and we think it's going to be better this year. But you look backwards and you're like, wait a second, I'm seeing win rates of this, or I'm seeing ASPs of that. If nothing changed, I'm not going to hit that plan. Right. So like at that point, it becomes like, What is the rest of the company doing that is going to ensure and help me realize these new objectives, right? And there becomes some tension there, right? Because like on some hand, like sales leaders like wholly accept that responsibility of hitting that revised goal or that new goal. But like there's a lot of accountability that kind of seeps out and hits the rest of the organization. And unless you can either you're going to hit those new goals and those new assumptions that are driving the model or you're not, right? And that's going to be a company led type initiative that's where you see a lot of plans break, right? Is people set goals, but those goals are based on kind of lofty desires versus realities.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's a really good point. And I think to an extent, it obviously relies on the data that you have as well. So in terms of, are you all kind of looking at the same data set, like at that point? And are you actually aligned like across different departments as well? So we've kind of, touched a little bit on like your new role in operations but now that you've kind of moved over what are kind of the talking about goals a bit what are your goals now kind of over the next 12 months now that you've kind of moved over and what are you hoping to achieve and i guess what are you kind of thinking in terms of delivering on that yeah i mean for i'm just
0: speaking about my experience at demand base obviously but yeah for us like we're, we're so i guess to kind of set the table like we're I'm just going to generically speak, two to three hundred million, hundred selling reps kind of on a, a good growth path. And also we're at a certain size and scale and so forth. And so obviously we've got our own growth objectives. A couple of the things that we've gone through over the past, let's just call it two years, is we've acquired three companies. And for anyone who works in ops, this is like, it's pretty brutal. There's no other way to put it. I mean, it's really challenging, right? Because you're basically faced with the challenge of integrating three CRM systems, making sure you don't lose any of the account base, right? getting all the renewals sorted out, making sure that all the people that are being inherited jump onto new comp plans and like all the mechanics that come with integrating other companies and so forth. That's been a huge chunk of the work, very candidly, since two years ago for a lot of my ops team. And this year really has kind of signified, like what I'll use air quotes for, a clean launch, right? Everyone always wants clean but like this is the time when as a company we've launched all the entities fully integrated from a product point of view from a CRM point of view from a Salesforce point of view and so this year is really about drilling targets hitting goals and enabling the sales team to basically grow and become really solid cross functional sellers right cuz it's a topic but whenever you acquire a company it's like there's new products that come into the mix, right? And so you've got an existing sales force, which is kind of the core of the company. You've got inbound new sales team members who come from the companies that you've acquired. The truth is, it's kind of like everyone's starting in a new company, right? And you have to enable everyone on the new products and services that you've got. And it becomes a big task, right? And so this year is really about like, we did a lot of that work at the end of last year, and it's still ongoing this year. But it now it's about really seeing that through and fulfilling on those goals of growth.
1: Where do you even begin to start on, you know, say you've got one company that you're acquiring coming in. From like an organisational perspective, yeah, where do you even start with like the planning for that? I guess there's so much. I mean, you touched on it even just with the CRM sounds, yeah, where well, incredibly stressful, <laughs> amongst other things, right? Is it as challenging as it sounds?
0: It's. I mean, I, I use the word brutal. It is brutal. I mean, it, there is no other way to put it. I mean, there, let's put it this way. Yeah. In Salesforce, there is no button that says merge instances, right? <laughs> There's a good reason very large consultancies exist to help us merge these things. Yeah, It is really challenging, right? Because like, as everyone knows, like Salesforce is a vanilla application, but the minute you start putting data in it, they diverge very differently, company to company. And if like you start getting into the, very much into the weeds, yeah, I guess my feedback and advice would be like, meet up very early with your counterparts on the sales ops team, start planning for things. One really, really big, important message I want to send to people that are going through this or thinking about going through this stuff is like, you're going to have to pick a CRM that you merge into. Most often it's the acquiring company CRM. For the company that's being acquired, you're going to find that oftentimes they're very like, they want to hold on to the data they have because they feel it's very precious or whatever. Mm -hmm. What in every case, when you finally convert over and everyone gets over the whole like, okay, now we're in this new CRM, more often than not, half the data you bring over that they don't actually use. So it's not even worth bringing or whatever. And so you get down to like mission critical. And what I would suggest is like the best way to go through is, hey, we're going to do this in phases. Phase one is going to be mission critical. Phase two, phase three is going to be this, that, and the other. And it gets kind of gets less important as you go out. And the truth is, once you get through phase one, everyone goes, wow, that was brutal. Like maybe you don't get to phase two or three because you're already in the new CRM. And you go, you know what? We don't need it. We can rebuild it here. And it's just as fast to do it because pulling data in is hard. Part two is uh, what I would also do is like you have to sell your CEO, CFO, whoever it is, that you're going to need some consultants that help you. Because if you don't do that, it's literally going to 100% drain your resources for the people you have on the team, because it is a full-time job to do. And then part three, I've got my CRM team behind me, but they've learned some lessons too. And I, I think if they can certainly speak volumes about it, but there's some new techniques to do this stuff too, including literally sucking all the data into like Tableau, right? So if for those out there that have Tableau CRM, then there's an enormous amount of storage and right, you can like pull this data in as well that way. And then you've got some flexibility with how you redeploy it in your CRM. Operationally speaking, I would say where things get really complex too is just like the gold of these acquisition assets is like their customers and what you don't want to screw up is like the renewals. And it becomes like, okay, we got to make sure that every customer gets transported over every single open renewal gets transported over and that all the reps have transparency and CX has the ability to like manage these customers because you don't want to lose it based on operational failure. The other piece of it too, which I'll just warn everyone, reporting just becomes a nightmare, right? Because what your CEO, CFO, and everyone's going to want like literally day one of the CRM being active is saying, okay, show me consolidated bookings or show me consolidated renewal rate or show me consolidated NDR reporting. And the truth is, is that the way they deal desk their deals on their end or the way you do it, they do not match. And so like their definition of ACV or do they book on ARR, what are like, how, how do they even treat deals? How do they treat D books? Do they have termination rights in their deals? Like, I mean, fundamentally it's like, does our bookings policy match? And how does that relate to like how these things actually get labeled inside of CRM? And so what you often find is that you have to like literally reconfigure every single booked deal that was done in their system and then somehow make that work within your reporting mechanism. And that can literally take months to finally get right. And oftentimes it's it ends up happening in spreadsheets outside CRM. And it take because it does take months to get the reporting to ultimately all iron out. It's a complicated matter and it's very frustrating for all,
1: all parties involved for sure because people want it fast. <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine. Good old trusty spreadsheets to the rescue. Yes, yes. <laughs> so we've talked a bit about kind of your time at demand base and some of the stuff you, that you've kind of been doing there. I kind of want to take a step out from that and what have been from Kind of across your career and perhaps from in the more recent years, what have been some of the most common challenges that you've come across and how did you solve them?
0: I would say, so I'll, I'll hit on some that were pretty recent. Like, so, so everyone went through COVID mm-hmm. and like, yeah. like, I think that was a great challenge for every business. And so, like, there's periods of growth and then there's like what I would describe as like violent periods of change, like where it's like, okay, our objectives are clearly changing. And COVID is a good example, right? Where like, I mean that that was hitting what I guess March of twenty, right? It was kind of like right, and that strikes on March April, and for many companies who are calendar based, that was the launch of their year. And you're coming into Jan Feb, and you're going, yeah, man, like this is a period of growth. We're investing in all these people. This is going to be great. And then all of a sudden, something like COVID happens, and the bottom drops out of the market, and it's like, okay, like we're not going to ignore this. We're going to fundamentally change our goals, objectives, maybe some of our Growth ambitions and all this kind of stuff. And like those become really big challenges because it's like you literally feel like you just finished the sprint that took place from September to January, whenever when you deliver comp plans. And then two months later, it's like, okay, like we're completely going to now move towards a model of we need to move to cost savings, breaking even because we have no clue when this thing is going to end. We have to go into, I think, what every company did, which is we're going to survival mode and all the stuff that comes with that, which is. Let's redo all the work we did back in September, October, November, December, replan the whole business and have really kind of uncomfortable decisions too. Like how many people do we need in this business? Who's going to be a part of this business? We have to evaluate all that and then recast an entire plan across the company and an entirely new quota comp system across the company. That's really challenging. It's really stressful. It's not fun. And, but to be honest, it's like, if, if for the companies that didn't do that, you didn't come out the other side stronger, right? Because like you ended up keeping a lot of weight, a lot of expense in the business through a pretty unsettling time of or a period of time. And I hate to say it, but that's also kind of happening right now, right? So, like coming out of the COVID exit, right? Like there was mm. a really magical period of growth, right? Where we all profited from, like, and COVID turned out to be, I think, a very digital lean-in moment, right? All of the offline stuff disappeared. And so you see a lot of these software companies, in particular marketing companies, really profiting in that period of time because like, all we could do was digital. And so companies really cashing in on that, which became a great period of growth. And you saw that with all the hundreds of IPOs all, you know, over the course of 2021 and so forth, and all, a lot of the, the splashes there. But there's been one IPO this year, right? at least tech IPO, mm. right? And the market has fundamentally changed and it's obviously driven by some of the inflation that we're seeing, and nobody could have predicted the whole war aspect of things. But I think, and I've talked with my peers in the industry about this too, but companies are definitely changing their tune. People are probably starting to experience it now, but there are freezes on hiring. Companies are beginning to think about, okay, like how do we tighten the pocketbooks? Is profitability you know, a goal that we need to double down on now? And how does that impact what we're doing from an operational point of view? And so I think right now, like literally in the now, I think a lot of companies are starting to think about that again, kind of of that COVID-esque, maybe not as severe, I don't know, maybe it's less violent, but longer in duration. (laughs) Nobody knows the future. Nobody has that crystal ball. But I think a lot of people right now are starting to think about these changes and how does it impact our operations and our planning, our resources, our headcount and goals for the year. And
1: would you say, certainly over the past, what's it been like three years, and there's also been two pretty seismic shifts, right? That's had an impact on businesses. Would you say that's been probably the biggest one that you have experienced in terms of like the pivot that then happened? I think so. I mean,
0: I would say like kind of outside of demand base for sure. I mean, that, that had the most impact and just triggered a tremendous amount of work that was really challenging to go through during a, t- a tough period of time too, where everyone was trying to adapt to like the whole work from okay. home schedule. I and mean, outside that i mean to be very candid anyone who's worked in an operations role who's acquired companies that is also just very challenging right it, there's just so much work right and it's like i mean i think i probably speak for a lot of ops people ops people really dream of like building the stuff that they want to build because they feel it's going to help the company more often than not our agenda is getting set by ceo cfo like right other stakeholders of the company where there's kind of like a trumping kind of priority list or kind of these like unpredictable events happen, a downturn, an acquisition or whatever it is, right? And it's like, oh my God, it's going to be all hands on deck. And all those lofty visions or great dreams you had like, oh, we want to build dashboards and build all these cool things that we think are going to help sales. They can get checked, right? And all of a sudden, you're not focusing on those things. You're making some of the evolution that you felt you could make in the department.
1: Do you feel like there is a way to kind of plan for these crazy circumstances? Based on kind of what we've all kind of been able to learn over the past few years? Or do you think it's a case of when it happens, you've just got to be able to adapt as quickly as possible?
0: Yeah, at the end of the day, you can't, nobody's got the crystal ball. You just have to adapt. I think, I guess my feedback would be like, man, when you're looking at the horizon line and the sun is shining and the sky is blue, just sprint on your personal stuff, sprint as much as you can, get as much as you can done because you really don't know where the next page is going to turn or what's going to be required of you or what's going to be asked of you that you could have never predicted, that will consume a lot of time. And so more often than not, a lot of times when that happens in the ops roles, you you launch your year, you kind of get off the ground and running. And I'll just use calendar year, but like Jan through the month of like March is a huge chunk of that launch for all the work that you had done over the course of, you know, kind of Q3, Q4 the year prior. But then you do get into that period where it's like, okay, care and feeding, making sure everything's going to plan or whatever, but like you can really start to scale up a lot of like those personal missions where it's like, man, we really got to start to like make evolution here as a department and start offering new things to the company and to ourselves and to make things scale a lot better. And we're going to sprint on those things because God knows what's coming
1: down the road. Absolutely. One last question for you, and I'm going to keep it super simple. Based off of your kind of 15 plus years in sales and now operations, what, do you have one piece of advice that you'd kind of want to share with other people?
0: Yeah, I guess my feedback would be, I guess, I'll, I guess who am I speaking to here? You know, I'll, I'll talk to some the sales team out there. I think, and I'll talk to people who are kind of in this disposition or whatever. But like, I guess, and this is more just a personal reflection for me and just some of the path that I went down or whatever. But like, let's just say you're like a sales manager and you're at any point at that first level, a second level a CRO or whatever, and you feel like you're a bit on the hamster wheel, or you feel like, man, like this is like getting repetitive, or this is not and I think that's a common feeling. And it's really easy to feel that way, right? Because the game of sales can get pretty vicious after a period of time. And I think the only thing that really is going to make that job more fun for you is growth. And when I mean growth, it's going to mean learning, which in many cases is going to mean more accountability. And I think there's kind of two paths for sales leaders out there. And, and one path is going to be, hey, I'm going to go from frontline to second line. And yeah, that's going to be more responsibility. And either you're going to try and do the same things you did as a frontline manager, or you're fundamentally going to say, okay, this is a different job. And I need, need to learn different things because now I'm managing a bit more at scale. And if I'm managing a bit more at scale, like maybe I'm not like going on ride alongs with my reps, but I'm now actually starting to like just really sit inside of like a gong, for example and like read transcripts and understand like what's going on, what are they saying, what are the keywords, this deal won, this deal didn't, how am I observing these two traits? Or you start to become a bit more of that CRO hat of I'm becoming more metricized. Like who on across these teams has enough pipeline? Who's going to be successful? Like, great, they're going to close a ton of business now, but what does their pipeline look like next quarter? Are they doing the right mechanics to make sure that they're always feeding that engine? And the, it just goes all the way up that pecking order, right? Where if you become that CRO, it is much more of a cross-functional leader where it's just it's going to be largely operationally driven, where you're running purely off the numbers. I will also say, too, that for the sales leaders that are out there where you've kind of been like, you know, I'm over this sales thing, the ops world, I, you shouldn't be afraid to try it. And I, what I will say is those first three, six, nine months, it'll be really hard because it's like, wow, I you know, I thought I was good or I thought I was technical or I thought I documented things. Like, man, the minute you step into ops, it's just like stepping into a subway that's gone hundred miles an hour. And everyone expects you to remember every artifact of everything that happened on that ride. <laughs> and it becomes this new game of organization and data and analysis and so forth. And the skills you learn on that side of it are incredible. And if you really want to bolster kind of your professionalism and professional skills, I would personally highly recommend, you know, being open to transitions into that world as well.
1: Beautiful. That's a great way to sign off, I think. Michael, it's been fantastic to have you on the podcast. Some amazing insights there. To finally sign off, for anyone that might have any questions or want to connect with you, where can they find you?
0: Yeah, I would say just feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn, probably the best way. And feel free to send me a message there. And yeah, happy to connect with folks who feel like they want to connect or or otherwise.
1: Awesome. We'll put a link in, in the show notes. Fantastic. Right, Michael, thank you for joining us. Listeners, thank you for listening as always. And uh, and we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.